1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27 tonight, and our side trip is 2 Peter chapter 3. Okay, quick review to see if you guys have been paying attention. Don't yell them all out at once, but you guys remember the four stated purposes of this letter. Okay, we find the first one, chapter 1, verse 4. He's, he uh, writes this letter that we might be filled with joy. You guys are good. Chapter 2, verse 1, he writes this letter that we might be freed from. Chapter 5, verse 13, he writes this letter that we might have a firm assurance. I fooled you because I skipped one yet. Yeah, see, well, the one I skipped was chapter 2, verse 26. He writes this that we might be able to fend off deception. That's going to be the main focus tonight. Uh, John gets down to brass tacks when it comes to the deception that has started to creep into the church. Tonight, the, the title of the message is An Antidote for Antichrists. Tonight, he's going to give us the antidote for antichrists. Um, antichrist is not exactly a warm, fuzzy topic, right? Um, but I think first off, right off the bat, as we get into the text tonight... I think John wants us to look on the bright side. Think about this, because this is where he's going in verse 18. The very presence of antichrists, plural, means that we are closer to the Lord's return. Look at verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. Notice first. He says Antichrist, singular, capital A. And then he says Antichrist, plural, little a. Now, the first one is the one that we think of most of the time when you say the word Antichrist, right? That world personality that will rise up in the last days and be the Antichrist. Anti. It means two. It has two meanings. Uh, it means to oppose. Right. And that's the Antichrist will do that. He'll uh, oppose the purposes and the, the mission and everything that Jesus stands for. He will oppose. But it also means to replace the Antichrist will try to uh, offer a counterfeit savior to the world. OK, so. I'm sure all of you guys know these things, but it's, it's good for us to cover them when we come to these verses. You guys realize, right, that when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he will not be obvious. His name will not be, for instance, Andrew Christ. Andy, you can call me Andy for short. He won't do that. He won't be, chances are, Charlie Christ's younger brother, Andrew Christ. Okay. The Bible says he's going to be witty. He's going to be charismatic. He's going to appear religious. And we're not sure of all of the details, but it's becoming more and more clear in, in the Bible. And as you look in the newspaper, that circumstances, perhaps financial or political or famine or all of the above, somehow circumstances will come together to allow him to be a savior of all mankind. Now, could it be that he's alive today? That he could step into the global spotlight at any time. I say absolutely. Definitely is possible that he is alive today and that the stage, I mean, we know the stage is already set for him to come upon the stage. Matter of fact, where you see that word coming, that is actually, it means to come upon the stage. 
Could it be that he's alive today and just ready to step out on the stage? Definitely. Now, do I know who he is? Not at all. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I do. (laughs) Some of you would like to go around Washington, D.C. while the city sleeps and shave some government heads looking for 666, right? Please, please don't do that. Listen, there are plenty of candidates for this. But think about this. What if you're wrong about this one or that one? And you accuse this person of that. Well, what have you done? Well, you've ruined a a person's reputation. You've ruined your own witness because you've said, thus saith the Lord, he's the Antichrist. It turns out he's not the Antichrist. Plus, all of those things, I would have to come and visit you in jail. Don't want to do that. John does not say that we should accuse every other government official of being the Antichrist with the big A. But he does say, notice, verse 18, look around, guys. There are many Antichrists with little a. There are many, he says, who oppose the real Christ. Many who will offer, they want you to follow some counterfeit. And what that means is we are in the last days. Verse 18, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. John says, look around. There's lots, lots of people that are opposing Christ, and that tells me it is the last hour. This lines up perfectly with Matthew 24. That is the, the chapter where Jesus gave the parameters. He said, this is what to look for in the, the time of the end, the end of the age. His disciples come to him and they say, look, what are the signs going to be of the end? And he says, well, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. That is strife between nations and strife within nations. Okay, you looked in the newspaper. Um, He says there's going to be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. Now, we could spend the rest of tonight showing we could take a newspaper and show how these events are everywhere today. We could do that, but I want to get through the text here tonight. The one thing that that John is trying to make clear here in these verses is that a huge indicator of the fact that we we're in the last days, according to Jesus, his own words, Matthew 24, is an abundance of antichrists with a little a. That is false Christ. Yes, imposters. Yes, there's plenty of them. You could look in the go on the Web and see that he says in Matthew 24, uh, verse five, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will deceive many. But he also says, listen to this. There will be many antichrists with a little a that is false teachers, teachers who try to who oppose. They pretend like they're Christian, but they oppose the very things that Jesus has taught. You'll find that in Matthew 24, verse 11, because he says, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Y'all, I am definitely convinced that we are in the last time. Now, wait, 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 you say time out. How long ago did John write this? Like 90 A.D. And he said it was the last hour then. And that's like 1900 years ago. You're thinking that is one stinking long hour. 
What is this, an hour at the Department of Motor Vehicles? An hour at the waiting outside the ER? How can John have lived in the last hour, and yet we're living in the last hour? Scriptures are very clear that John expected, matter of fact, you can just look down at verse 28. You can see that he expected Jesus to come during his lifetime. Paul did the exact same thing, expected Jesus to come during his lifetime. All of the New Testament writers, inspired by God, they all looked to the imminent return of Jesus. That means it could happen at any time. Now, were they wrong? Well, turn to Second Peter, and I'll show you something. Second Peter chapter 3. And while you're on your way there, let me tell you that we are instructed, whether or not he actually comes to this earth while we're alive, we're instructed to think that way. We are absolutely commanded to expect his imminent return. Second Peter chapter three, verse eight. Look at it. This is how it's possible. He says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing. And by the way, Peter is talking about uh, Jesus return. Do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God's perspective on time is different than ours. Reminds me of that old story. Maybe you heard it. Man is speaking to God. He says, Lord, is it true that for you a million years is just like a minute? Yes, son. Well, then, Lord, is it true that like a million dollars is for you like a a penny? Yes, son, that's true. Well, Lord, could I have a penny? Certainly, son, in a minute. God lives outside of time, right? We know that he he lives in eternity where there is no time. So for him, a thousand years is like a day. A million years is like a second. It's different for him and us. So look at verse nine. He says, Second uh, uh, Peter, chapter three, verse nine, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This explains a lot. See, once he returns, all bets are locked in. All choices are locked in. So he is waiting and patiently waiting and waiting. Probably everybody in this room, if, I mean, there's, there's comes a point in your life when you look back and say, boy, I'm sure glad he didn't come then. I'm so glad that he waited until now or after now. See, he's patient. He's not slack concerning his promise. He's promised to come. He's not slack concerning his promise. There's some count slackness, but he is long-suffering. He is so patient. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And now look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. How does a thief in the night come? Unexpectedly. When you least expect it, expect it. Right? So this, to me, brings me right into the same attitude that Paul and John and all these guys had, which is he could come tonight. There's nothing that needs to happen for him to come and to take away his bride tonight. See, this is why we're precisely why we are always to look for his imminent return. Here's a a way to think about it. If it was the last hour in John's day. How late must it be now? Another story you may have heard about the old farmer who bought a new clock 
Well, he bought a clock from a secondhand store. Actually, it was new to him, but he wasn't sure how it was going to work. So he stayed up late one night, stayed up till midnight, wanted to make sure that it chimed correctly. So midnight, he's sitting in his chair. His wife's asleep. Clock strikes nine, ten. Good enough. All right, 11. Good. 12. 13. 14. 15. 16. 17. He finally jumps out of his chair and says, Gladys, wake up. It's later than it's ever been. You guys see the point, right? In the grand scheme of things, this much we know for sure. It's later than it's ever been. We've never been closer to his return than we are at this moment. And here's John's evidence of that. And it's truer now. I think you'll see this as we go. It's truer now than it's ever been. Look at verse 18 again. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. He says, look around. There are from every side, there are people opposing Christ and the things that he that he teaches, the things that are, should be taught about him. Look around everywhere you see there are antichrists. Now, let me give you an outline for the rest of the, the scripture tonight. Basically, we're going to see uh, three things that we're going to learn about antichrists with a small a. And then we're going to see uh, three things that you would put under the heading of antidote for Antichrist. Okay? And, and I'll, I'll lay those out for you in case you, uh, you want to take notes that way. Under the word Antichrist, you could put, they depart from the fellowship. We'll see that in verse 19. In uh, verses 22 through 23, we'll see that they deny the Son and therefore deny the Father. And in verse 26, we'll see that they try to deceive the family of God. So they depart from the fellowship, they deny the Son. And they deceive the family of God. That's under the word antichrist. Now, the antidote we'll see here in a second, but it has to do with the anointing, verse 20 and 21. And also, we are able to analyze the lies of the antichrist, verse 22 and 23. And then finally, our uh, antidote involves abiding in the truth, verse 24 through 27. Okay? Uh, Need him again? Okay, I'm going to go on. All right. First thing now, under that first heading, Antichrist. The first thing that we learn about these Antichrists with a little a is that sooner or later they depart from the fellowship. Look at verse 19. They depart from the true fellowship with God and with with his family. Verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. <laughs> Is that clear enough? First of all, let me show you. Yes, you see it, don't you? You see it. Yes, they're all excited. The word manifest. It's one of my favorite illustrations, right? It's in the Greek, it's phaneru, and it means to make visible that which is already present, but you can't see it. Phaneru, manifest. Okay, right now, this Bible is manifest. Now it's not. Manifest? Not. Okay, it's always present. It's always, it's, it's here, right? But you can't see it. So it, at the end of uh, verse 19, what he says is, look, what was true all along, we discovered when these 
antichrists left us. There's actually a word play in the Greek. <clears throat> in the Greek, that word, uh, the word from and of are the same word as ek. <clears throat> and to translate it into the Greek, it might be, or to English, it might be something like this. Uh, it's kind of a word play. It might be saying something like this. They, look, they parted from us, but they were never really a part of us. Because if they were a part of us, they, never, they would never have parted from us. But since they parted from us, they were never a part from us. Okay? The same idea, which is, look, they looked like they were part of the group. They looked like they belonged. But when they left, it became obvious that, no, they, they never belonged. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard, there may be some churches, I, I pray that we, we are never one of them, that will use this verse to somehow uh, malign people who would leave the church, their particular church, to say, well, um, you've left Calvary Chapel of the Lakes, and so uh, we declare First John chapter 2, 19. Okay, that's a little uptight, and... And thinking a lot more of yourself than the, what the scriptures declare of the church. What they're talking about is the real, live, true church of God. Um, so what verse 19 is saying is that Antichrist then will seem like they are part of the body, right? But sooner or later, they'll depart. And when they do, that shows that they never were part of the body. And here's where, to me, this screams... The fact that it's later than it's ever been. Look around and tell me that this isn't happening in nearly every mainline denomination in America. People departing from the true church. I don't know if I got to print it out. Uh, Philip was going to print it out for me. Maybe I brought it here. Sorry. This is my unorganizedness. Don't see it. I'm going to have to uh, give the uh, the rough draft version. He was telling me today, and it just was crazy how it fit in. The uh, you guys heard about the uh, the the ELCA, the the Lutheran Church of America. They had this vote. I guess it was today or yesterday, and uh, it was to allow homosexuals that are monogamous to preach in the pulpit, um, not to welcome them because they're sinners like the rest of us, but to actually preach the word of God from the pulpit. And according to the, the thing that uh, Philip printed out for me and I lost is the vote was that it had to be a two thirds vote and it passed with exactly 66.6%. Kids, you're not pretty weird. And then there's a, a parallel article, I guess, that, that the, the same day, uh, I guess just that an hour or two earlier, uh, there was a Lutheran church that was there in Minneapolis that was hit by a tornado. And it was happened to be the church that uh, will be feeding some of the people that are at that convention. Okay? I didn't make this up. I'm sharing this with you to say that, look around, there are many antichrists. Little a, right? Think about it. Presbyterians, Lutherans, Episcopals, and believe me, I am not maligning these as denominations because I happen to know Lisa's sister. Uh, they are in this, this Episcopal church that's in uh, South Carolina. We took, we took the youth group up, and they are standing firm in the truth of the gospel, but 
They could pay dearly for it. There are churches all around inside each one of these denominations that are standing firm, and we need to pray for them. Okay? So I am not maligning any whole denomination. But what I'm telling you is that within those things, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Episcopals, all of these mainline churches, these are not fringe churches. These are mainline churches are splitting over core Bible issues. And what's happening in each of these cases, there's the, the true church that is clinging to the Bible. And there are others departing. And sometimes because they outnumber the true church, they're taking the property with them and all sorts of stuff. Now, you look around and tell me that there are not antichrists abounding with a little a. John says, look, when they depart from the true church, they show who they really are. And to me, they show that we are in the last days. Now, so that we can stay on the topic of antichrist in in our little outline, let's skip down to verse 26 real quick show you the next uh, D. Not only do antichrists depart from the fellowship, but in verse 26, it's very obvious they try to deceive the family of God. Verse 26, this is our our key memory verse, right? Uh, As far as one of John's stated purposes. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. Again, the antichrists of this world, guys, will not introduce themselves as Andrew Christ. Right? They will not say, you can call me Andy, Christ for short. Um, the, the wolves always wear sheepskin while they're in the fold. They always talk the talk. They always talk um, about love and acceptance. But they have no biblical core to what they put to, to use the word love. Their whole game is deception. Jesus said that... Anyone who follows their father, the devil, will do what he does. And he's been a liar from the beginning. Now, here's the thing. Many of the what I'm calling wolves, Antichrist with little a, I believe themselves are deceived. So that doesn't mean, though, that they're still not delivering a lie. No, actually, they're better at delivering the lie because they believe it themselves. Does that make sense? You ask any salesman, the best salesman is one who actually believes in his product. But please do not be deceived by sincerity because what they are selling you, if they begin to break down, if you look at what they believe, what they're selling you, a a false Jesus is a lie from the pit. And what is that lie? Well, there's our third D. Go back to verse 22. The lie is all based around the fact that they deny the son. Verse 22, who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is antichrist who denies the father and the son. See, that's what it boils down to. And you guys probably already knew this. It boils down to this. What do they say about Jesus? Not only do the antichrists Sooner or later, they depart from the true fellowship. Not only do they try to deceive the family of God while they're in the fellowship, but here is the deception that they deny the son. And we're going to see that means they also deny the father. How do they deny the son? Well, here's how they begin. And if you notice all of the the mainline churches, all the things that I'm talking about, they may be at this place, but you watch. They, They go further and further into denying the very essence of who Jesus is. See, 
a deceiver and antichrist will eventually deny the whole biblical truth about Jesus. And here's the biblical truth, guys, that, that Christ needs to be. If it's a real church, Christ needs to be defined by the Christ in the Bible. Not something else, not a, a, a version that we want to create. But Christ defined in the Bible, here's, you know, for starters, he is God. From before time began, he is and was and will always be God. He humbled himself. He became a man with real skin, right? He was born of a human virgin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect atoning death. He rose again on the third day, and he's now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for those whom he purchased, right? All of that stuff, foundational, fundamental. Here's the thing. Every cult, right, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, all of them, they get tripped up on that very first statement. He is God. The Mormons... There's some awesome, wonderful, uh, moral Mormons, lots of them. But the Mormons, this is what they believe, that he, Jesus, is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Not God, just a little bit less. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that he uh, is the archangel Michael, right? See, every cult, every antichrist with a little a, every... And even the, the, the mainline churches are going this way. They're beginning to teach that Jesus is something less than what the Bible declares him to be. That's why you, you, you listen to some of the, the leaders of some of these churches and they're like, well, yeah, we're not sure now about the whole resurrection thing. <laughs> what? <laughs> they, eventually they begin to deny the very core of what Jesus is and what he's done and what he's going to do. The main issue, really, when you boil it down to, is Jesus, who he says he is, God with skin on. Verse 22, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist, with little a. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Now, wait, you say, wait, well, okay. Well, I mean, somebody in, this, in one of these groups that I've just thrown under the uh, spiritual bus, I guess, right? Someone in these groups could protest, well, wait a second. Okay, what you're saying is true, but but wait, I, I never denied the Father. I just deny the Son, that Jesus is God, right? Um, I'm sorry about that, but verse, verse 23 is very clear that the Father and the Son are a package deal. See it? Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also, that word acknowledges that should be familiar to some of us. It's homo logeo. It's the same word we use for confession. It means to say the same thing. So whoever denies the son misses out on the father also. But who he who says the same thing about Jesus that his father says. Has the father also. Whoever says the same thing about Jesus that the father says about Jesus. You're the ones who can have a relationship with Jesus. So that's the cults. They would say they would say, well, we believe in the father, but we're not sold on on the, the deity of the son. That argument has just been uh, dismantled. But look at verse 23 and think of it from a non-believers perspective. Maybe, you know, someone. I, I don't know. I, I'm looking around. Don't think there's anybody here in this place tonight, but maybe 
either you're a non-believer or you know a non-believer, and you kind of make the same argument, which is this. Look, look, I believe in God. I mean, you'd have to be ignorant to come to the conclusion that there is no God. I mean, look around. There is some force, something that has created me. Okay, I believe in God. I just don't believe the stories about Jesus. Look, if you if you are like that or if you know anyone like that, then you or that person need to come to terms with what, verse 23. Do you see it? It's very clear. Whoever denies the son does not have the father either. He who acknowledges homo legeo says the same thing about the son that the father does has the father also. It's a package deal. There's a lengthy illustration that I don't think I've used. You may have heard it, but it's a good one. It makes the point. A very wealthy English Baron Fitzgerald had only one child, a son, who understandably was the apple of his eye, the center of his affections, an only child, the focus of this little family's attention. Well, the son grew up, but in his early teens, his mother died, leaving him and his father. Well, Fitzgerald grieved over the loss of his wife, but devoted him to fathering their son. In the passing of time, the son became very ill and died in his late teens. In the meantime, the Fitzgerald financial holdings greatly increased, and the father had used much of his wealth to acquire artworks of the masters. And with the passing of time, Fitzgerald himself became ill and died. Previous to his death, he had carefully prepared his will with explicit instructions as to how his estate would be settled. He had directed that there would be an auction in which his entire collection of art would be sold because of the quantity and quality of the artworks in his collection, which was valued in the millions of English pounds, a huge crowd of prospective buyers gathered expectantly. Among them was, were many museum cur uh, curators and private collectors that were eager to bid. So it's auction day. The artworks were displayed for viewing before the auction began. Among them was one painting which received little attention. It was of poor quality and done by an unknown local artist. It happened to be a portrait of Fitzgerald's only son. When the time came for the auction to begin, the auctioneer gaveled the crowd to attention, and before the bidding began, the attorney read first from the will of Fitzgerald, which instructed that the first painting to be auctioned was the painting of my beloved son. Well, the poor quality painting didn't receive any bidders except one. The only bidder was the old servant who had known the son and loved him and served him for, sentiment, for sentimental reasons. He offered the only bid, but it was less than an English pound that he bought the painting. The auctioneer stopped the bidding then and asked the attorney to read again from the will. The crowd was hushed, and it was quite unusual for this. And the attorney read from the Fitzgerald will, whoever buys the painting of my son gets all my art collection. This auction is over. You guys see the, the point? Whoever receives the son gets it all. Whoever receives the son gets it all. It is a package deal. Look at verse 23. Whoever denies the son does not have the father either. He who acknowledges the son has the father also. So, y'all, we've learned three things about Antichrist. Sooner or later, they will depart from the true fellowship, the true church. And again, I think the rate at which this is happening today proves that we're in the last hour. Number two, they will try to deceive the family of God. And number three, they will deny the son, his deity, who he is, 
they will deny what the Bible says about the Son, and thereby they will deny the Father also. Okay? So, now we know about Antichrist. What do we do? What, what's our antidote? What, what in the world are we going to do? I mean, are we supposed to just call out every Antichrist? Do we go around pointing at all the Antichrists? And I don't know if you saw this. This was this week uh, in Gainesville. A lawyer for a North Florida school district says a handful of students have been sent home from Alachua County schools this week for wearing shirts that read, Islam is of the devil. Staff attorney Tim Whitmer says the shirts might have offended or distracted others and violated the dress code. The shirts are connected to a local church called, um, I didn't have it written down, but the, the, the senior pastor tells the Gainesville Sun that the spreading the church's message is more important than education. Okay, I get that. But is your message that Islam is of the devil? Or is your message that Jesus is the Christ? Is our strategy, let me put it this way, is our strategy the antidote for Antichrist? Is it to go pointing our fingers and to, to have a t-shirt that says, this is an Antichrist, this is an Antichrist? Well, think about this. If, if I'm not convincing you yet, that the answer should be no. Think about this. What did we learn on Sunday? Every philosophy, every proposition, every perk that is of the world, everything that does not have Jesus in the very center of it is ultimately of the devil. Right? Are you with me? So the shirts are true. Islam is of the devil. But if that is your strategy to spread the gospel... You're going to have to spend an awful lot of money on T-shirts, right? You're going to have to have a T-shirt that says anti-Chrysler because it's part of Madison Avenue. You're going to have to have a T-shirt that says anti-Devil's Food Cake, Devil Eggs, Devil Hand, Santa, Satan. You're going to have to have a lot of T-shirts. If that is your strategy, because we just learned the enemy, the puppet master, holds sway over the whole world. You're going to have to have a really big closet if that's your strategy. What's the antidote then for Antichrist? I don't see anywhere in here where it says we're supposed to make T-shirts and accuse. Here's what I see. The first point, antidote for Antichrist. Number one, guys, understand this. That you are anointed. Look at verse 20. He says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. I think what John is saying here is, look, don't go freaking out because there are antichrists, little a, abounding. I think he's saying in this verse, look, I'm not writing to you freaking out because you're so incapable of discernment on your own says, no, I'm writing to you because you do get it. You do see the big picture. You do see what's going on. Verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. Think about the things that we should be remembering in the face of the, this truth, that there are many antichrists abounding. Number one, remember that his return is closer than it's ever been. When you see all the antichrists abounding, that means his return is closer than it's ever been. Number two, 
Remember what he said. Greater his, is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But number three, right here, verse 20. Remember, guys, you are anointed. Now, maybe you're not sure what that means. Verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. We use the word anointed usually to mean specially gifted, right? We say, man, that special music was anointed. Or, man, that sermon was anointed. Okay, you guys never say that. Um, anointed, what it literally means is anything smeared on, an ointment. It was usually prepared by the Hebrews from oil and aromatic herbs, and it was part of the ceremony for priests. It, the word actually means ointment. You guys heard how to tell the difference between swine flu and bird flu? For bird flu, you seek tweetment. For swine flu, you get oinkment. <gasps> sorry. Okay, it's not anointed. All right, sorry. Um, listen, the, the scriptures say that you are anointed. What that means is that you have been made a priest. Bible says that if you're born again, okay, if you're if you don't know Jesus, I'm not talking to you right now. But if you know Jesus, you have been born into the priesthood. You're part of the kingdom of priests, which means I also looked at it. I, this might be a stretch, but when I think of white men, I think of ISAF. And what he's talking about is being able to discern. I think he's saying, look, you have everything you need to make your way through this wicked world filled with antichrist. Okay, you have been anointed as a priest of the kingdom and you've been anointed to be an effective one. Verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy Holy One and you know all things. Okay, wait a second. You probably know. I know a few of folks who take verse 20 a little too far. Like they really do know all things. Uh, here's the correct understanding of this. Okay. This does not mean that you know all that there is to know. This means that you know all that you need to know. Okay? I think one of the things John is saying here is, look, yes, there's Antichrist everywhere you turn, but relax. Look, you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you know everything you need to know to not get sucked in to their traps. Interesting that the Bible says, and false Christ will arrive, uh, arise from, from all sorts of places, and, and the deception will be so great that uh, even the elect would be deceived if it were possible. I think we read that and we go, oh, maybe the elect are going to be deceived. No, it says if it were possible. It says you have an anointing from the Holy One. You don't need to be freaking out. You know and you will know everything you need to know. So the antidote for Antichrist then is number one, look, don't forget you're anointed. Number two, the A would be for analyze their lies. You can analyze the lies of the Antichrist. Look at verse 22 because he says, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? We've already gone into that. But basically, your quick litmus test Somebody tells you something, you're like, oh, wait a second, my anointing makes me, you know, my spidey sense going off here. What's going on? Analyze it. Okay. What did you just say? Did you, okay, 
A real quick way to get right to the point. Somebody walks on, knocks on your door and says, yes, I believe in Jesus and I believe he saved the world. Well, do you believe that he is God? Uh, well, well, I, eh. all of a sudden you have analyzed the lie and it's very simple. What do they say? What do they believe about Jesus? Right. And think about it. Mormons. Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, all of it, they all want to claim that we're all we're all believing in the same God, right? But it all breaks down when it comes to the person and the Godhood of Jesus. Okay? So don't freak out, John says, look, you've got the anointment and you've got a method by which to analyze their lies. And then the last A is simply the word abide. That's another illustration that I have probably beat into the ground. You guys remember abide? Right? Yeah, you're like, yeah, I do. That, that nice, easy chair that you just sink down into to settle in. Again, I think John is saying, look, just relax. Settle into the word, the things that you've been taught. Settle into Christ that you have been taught. Look at verse 24. Matter of fact, why don't we do the uh, audience participation thing? You guys say the word abide. Ready? Therefore, let that in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Father and in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. There's a promise, guys. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie and just as it has taught you you will abide in him really very simple see one of the reasons that john is writing this and again he says look i'm not writing this because i'm freaked out that you guys are going to be really uh taken off course he says but i'm writing this to kind of reinforce what you what the spirit is already telling you look just abide in what you have been taught from the beginning. Right? Verse 24. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. The thing that they heard from the beginning was that he who was from the beginning is available for a relationship. Right? That he actually lived uh, and had skin on. And, and John saw him and handled him and touched him. That's all from chapter 1. If what you heard from the beginning, if you just keep it right there in you, right? If you just let it abide in you, you also will abide in him. If you just stay focused on the core truth, when somebody comes and says, hey, I've got a deeper uh, teaching, something that no, you can't find anywhere in the Bible. It's special. Come, come listen to this. You're like, uh, no, you know what? I'm just going to abide in the Bible. It says, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and the Father. He's kind of saying like it's not rocket science. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. If you just stay right there in the pocket, in the sweet spot, stay with him, you don't have to have any worry. Verse 26, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. They're going to try, but I'm not all that worried about you. Verse 27, but the anointing which you have received from him it abides in you, that anointing, that Holy Spirit. Um, and you guys, I'm sure, have experienced that, right? Where even when you were a baby Christian, you came into a service and the preacher seemed to like talk all about money 
or whatever it was. And you're like, something ain't right here. That's what he's talking about. Verse 27. But the anointing that instant, by the way. Anointing isn't something that you get because you're special or, um, you know, again, I understand that the way that we use that word. But this declares that the anointing is for every single believer. So the minute you receive Jesus into your life, you get this anointing that in one way protects you, even though you don't know a stitch of the Bible. You're like, no, that's not right. And then you're smart enough to ask another believer or read the scriptures. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And look, watch this. And you do not need that anyone teach you. Now, does that mean you guys need to fire me? Uh, please say no. Um, what does that mean? Matter of fact, you'll have some people that will say, look, I don't need to go to that stinking church. I got the Bible. That's all I need. Well, interesting, though, if they depart from the fellowship altogether, right? If they say, look, I don't need that that place at Calvary Chapel of the Lakes. OK, fine. But you're going someplace else, right? Oh, no, I don't need I don't need any believers in my life. Well, if you're using this as your proof text. Right. I don't need any teacher. Well, then you have to deal with the earlier verse that says you're going to if you depart from the faith, you show that you're not really a believer. Right. This doesn't mean that. There aren't people that are gifted, that are specifically uh, instructed to help each other, help us uh, learn. But think about this. And remember. When the New Testament was written. It went through various stages of persecution. And again, we could be on the verge of persecution here. Have you ever thought about what if Christianity becomes outlawed? And I preach through Romans chapter 1 and they send me to jail. Okay, and then Philip preaches the next week and they send him to jail. <laughs> right? Over and over again, all of the teachers end up in jail. What if... You say, okay, well, we're going to band together. This is awesome, you know, because the Lord is here with us. And, and we, every week we're faithful, and every week somebody gets picked off and sent to jail. What if somehow the whole church ends up in separate jail cells? Are we lost? No. You have no need that anyone teach you. What he's getting at is this. Look, no matter what happens, you have the best teacher available to you 24-7. Again, I don't know how poignant this we're going to look back in in a year or two or five and go, man, that was pretty weird that we talked about going to jail for believing the Bible. I don't know, but it's definitely could be possible because you look around. The antichrists are everywhere. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things. And it's true and is not a lie. Again, that discernment, he gives you the Holy Spirit. And just as, as it has taught you, you will abide in him. I hope, I don't know, but I'm hoping that as you listen to this sermon, at first it was alarm. We're, we're, we are in the last days. There are antichrists everywhere. But I'm hoping that now you've come to the other side where it's like, you know what? It's going to be fine. It's really going to be fine because God is in control. He always has been. He's got it all covered here. He's so good. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your goodness. Um, Lord, I don't know where each person in, in the room is. Lord, there may be some that think I'm an alarmist. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. But Lord, I know 
that your scripture is true. And I know that no matter what, you've instructed us to behave and to think as if your return is, an, is imminent. Lord, I pray that you would, you would help each one of us. Lord, there's no surprise that you brought each one here tonight. The power of your word. Your word is living and active and you're able, Lord, to, uh, to divide between the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. You know, each one of us, Lord, you know where we are in our walk with you. You know if we're fearful. You know if we're complacent. Lord, I, I truly believe you're not calling us to any position of fear or uh, accusing. Lord, but what you're desiring, Lord, is for us to be settled, to abide in you. Lord, I pray that you'd help us tonight. Thank you, Lord, for this, what could be a great warning and a timely warning. Thank you, Lord, that you so care for us, that you, you give us these, these signposts. And you, you alert us so that we won't be completely uh, waylaid when uh, things do, do occur that we, w- we normally wouldn't expect. We love you and we thank you and ask for you to continue to do your work. Lord, purify your church. Help us, Lord, be ready for your return in Jesus' name. Amen.